Well, you know, I was, uh, I had the thought that I could thank and applaud all the kids for being here through the summer. I thought they did so well, but now they're in class, so I actually can't. So you too, great job for the summer. <laughs> uh, so as we continue on uh, in the Gospel of Mark here, uh, let me draw your attention to the question that's raised in verse 51 from Jesus. What do you want me to do for you? Might be a familiar question. Uh, we actually saw it last week in the previous passage, verse 36. The very same question he asked James and John. What do you want me to do for you? And what you have is two narratives right next to each other that give totally different responses. If you remember, John and James, they are after position and power and influence, prestige, being above other people so they, they can feel important. Bartimaeus comes with a totally different ap, uh, uh, approach, totally different attitude of, of the heart. I have nothing to offer. There's nothing special here. And Mark uh, then seems to intentionally want these narratives to be read side by side to demonstrate the contrast. So as to hold up one and tell us to resist and run away from uh, the other. So James and John, they, they want to be important in the eyes of people, and they feel like they are important. So they feel like they should be given important seats because they're above other people. They have a high view of themselves. Uh, they feel like they have it all together. They're, they're ready for anything that the world could, be, that could throw, uh, the world could throw at them. They actually seem to, to have this attitude that Jesus is, is lucky to have us. We, we are good people to have on your team. They think they're worthy of special treatment from the Lord. And they think they're better than other people. Where Bartimaeus is the exact opposite. He realizes there's nothing good in himself. He's an unworthy beggar. One of the lowest in the whole community. He's got nothing to offer. He doesn't deserve to be welcomed before Jesus. He doesn't deserve special treatment from him. And he's beneath other people. And for James and John, this is actually the second time, if you remember, in this section, these two chapters, uh, where the disciples are trying to put themselves up above other people. And Jesus is continuously correcting them that true greatness is not in having position and power and pursuing the ways of the world, but in giving up yourself and denying yourself and laying yourself down. That's true greatness because that's the way the king, that's the way Christ is going. Christ has come as the Son of Man, the Christ to conquer, but not to conquer by overthrowing the government, but by laying down his life for other people. And we saw that right at the end of the last passage, we, we see the climax of this whole concept where why is he laying down his life? But to give his life as a ransom, to be the price, to, to purchase God's people back, rescue them from the wrath of God. And so Mark here wants us to resist James and John's attitude and the disciples' attitude towards Christ and towards other people. We don't have anything to offer because he says there's a better way. There's a better way, and that's blind Bartimaeus. This unworthy beggar is the path of discipleship. To know yourself there, that you have nothing special to offer. Anything good that comes out of you is by the grace of God. 
So what are you going to point to as if Jesus should give you special treatment? We are all blind beggars. So Mark seems to be saying, behold the wonder of the gospel. Blind beggars become the beloved of God because of the ransom of the Son. Unworthy, empty-handed people become the beloved of God because the Son has given himself in exchange for their life. In other words, the more we know ourselves to be beggars before God, the more rich our soul will actually be. We'll be free, and we'll know ourselves secure before God. So let's walk through the passage. Uh, As we go through it, try to consider uh, Mark here wanting us to identify with Bartimaeus, resist the ways of James and John, and identify with Bartimaeus before God and before other people. We'll walk through the narrative together. Uh, Verse 46, they came to Jericho, and as Jesus was leaving Jericho with his disciples and with a great crowd, uh, we'll we'll pause there for a minute just to set a little bit of the scene. I know that he's going to paint the scene a little bit more, but just so we know where we're at uh, here. Uh, We we don't know exactly what ministry looked like in Jericho. Uh, We can assume, as throughout the rest of the book, it was custom for Jesus to go into a village and teach, Right? And he would teach about the kingdom of God. And occasionally he would do some miracles as well. But as we saw multiple times, even when he did miracles, the miracles were meant to instruct. And we saw sometimes his, the instruction was to, to instruct the, on the identity of Jesus. Remember, Jesus heals that paralytic in chapter 2. And he says, so that you will know that the Son of Man does have authority to forgive sins, I say to you, get up, take, pick up your mat and, and walk, Right? The, the miracle was meant to instruct on who Jesus was, or the feeding of the, the 4,000 and the 5,000. We're meant to demonstrate that Jesus himself is God in the flesh. But they also had uh, instruction in the sense of painting a picture of what was actually going on. We saw the, the, the two-stage miracle in chapter 8 of the healing of blind, uh, the blind man in Bethsaida, where it took two stages of healing. And it wasn't because Jesus' power was suddenly weak. It was painting a picture of where the disciples were at. They were starting to grasp who Jesus was, but they didn't fully understand the way of Christ. Remember that? So, it's, it's so as to say, right, like right after that scene, when he, it takes two, two stages to heal that blind man, remember what happens. Uh, Peter confesses Jesus as the Christ, and then Jesus starts to tell, tell them about his suffering to come, and Peter starts to, remember, rebuke Jesus. Peter gets in the face of Jesus and says, you cannot do that. And what is Jesus say to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Remember, the, the, that blind man, that two-stage healing was painting a picture on what was happening in the scene of the, the overall narrative. The disciples starting to get it, but not fully getting it, and they still needed their eyes more uh, op- opened to gain more clarity. And so as now he's leaving Jericho, uh, this is a significant time of the book. So if you remember... Uh, Right at the opening of the book, chapter 1, verse 2, he quotes from Malachi. I don't expect you to remember this, but in Malachi, God says, I am going to come on the day of the Lord, and when I come, I'm going to go to my temple. And when I go to my temple, I'm going to bring judgment and salvation. I'm going to cleanse it. And so from chapter 1, verse 2, we have been waiting for Jesus to get to the temple. Right? So that's the whole anticipation leading up to this. 
But Jesus never sets foot in the whole city of Jerusalem, the whole book yet. Chapter 8, he starts telling his disciples that he's going to go to Jerusalem, and when he goes there, he's going to suffer. And so there's, there's been this buildup waiting to get to Jerusalem. And if you look at chapter 11, verse 1, the very next passage, now when they drew near to Jerusalem, and then look at verse 11, and he entered Jerusalem. So this is the, this is the very last passage of what we've been waiting for since chapter 1, verse 2. Jesus is going to Jerusalem, he's going to go to the temple, he's going to cleanse it, bring judgment and salvation. It's finally about to happen because Jericho is the very last city on the pilgrimage. If you're coming from the north or from, from the east, it's the last major city leading into Jerusalem. And so when you read that, if we knew the, the geographical setting, we would say, whoa, we're, we're right outside. We're one day journey now from Jerusalem. This is what we've been waiting for. And it's about to happen. So the anticipation as the reader should be building. Here we go. Finally it's coming. And now he's going to paint the scene a, a little more for us. We have a new character, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. So let's uh, consider Bartimaeus here. We're told, uh, if, if you just kind of even envision how he's t- telling this, how he slows, the, he slows the film down here. All of a sudden, he introduces this character, puts the spotlight, puts the camera right on this man, and he says, tells us several things about him. He's Bartimaeus, that's his name. He's blind. He's a beggar. And he's the son of Timaeus, which son of Timaeus actually is just a translation of Bartimaeus. So he's just, he said the same thing twice. Bar meaning son son of Timaeus, and so he tells us that twice. He's not only Bartimaeus, that's his name, but he's the son of Timaeus, and it's like, okay. So he's slowing everything down so you can get a real good glimpse of this guy sitting by the roadside. Now, interestingly enough, Bartimaeus is the only person in the whole book to actually be named as one who received a miracle. Everybody else who received a miracle in the book, we don't know the names of of the people, but Bartimaeus... We have his name. Now, we don't know exactly why. Many think it's very probable that Bartimaeus was uh, a part of the early church. He was a beloved member of the early church. Everybody knew him. Mark probably would have known him, especially as we see where the scene uh, goes. And the same, perhaps, is why he slows down to tell us he's the son of Timaeus. Is perhaps his dad, Timaeus, also became a follower of Jesus and was prominent in the early church. And so Mark, going out of his way to specifically name uh, these people. But then he describes who this man is. Two descriptors that uh, paint a, a very bleak picture for Bartimaeus. First of all, he tells us that he's blind. Now, in our culture, um, we have some things that can help blind folks, uh, thankfully, and that's a very good thing. Uh, in this culture, uh, there's, there's not going to be a lot of hope for someone physically blind. There's, there's a very uh, limited, next to nothing, anything they can do treatment-wise, uh, but also the way the system is set up in the culture. There's just nothing to help this man. He's blind. Obviously, physically, this would be very difficult. I mean, it, it's for, for us who are seeing, uh, this is even hard to even comprehend it at all. 
right? And we can't blame ourselves for that. It's just a world we don't know. Uh, I don't know if you ever had the experience where you injure like your shoulder or something or your finger, something that's, you know, not, it's not crazy, but all of a sudden you're like, wow, I use my shoulder a lot. You know, every time I'm reaching for something in the, in the uh, pantry or I'm writing or just doing something, I'm opening a drawer to get some socks out. All of a sudden it's like, man, I use this thing a lot. And suddenly it's like agonizing. I just got a little, you know, a little ache in my shoulder. And so you can imagine all of a sudden if everything just went dark, you can't see anything. The, the, the extent to which your world would be totally radically shaped in a different and more difficult way is quite astounding. I mean, cutting a cucumber suddenly becomes terrifying for you. Or going to a restaurant and ordering a drink, and how do you know they are giving you the right drink? Or do you go to pay for some groceries? How do you know you're getting the right change back? All these things, all of a sudden, it's like, whoa, hold on a second. How do I go here? Where do I, how do I go there? How, how do I do this thing? All of a sudden, everything becomes very difficult. And, and that's not the only part of it. it it's, it's also, in, in that culture, the way Jewish people looked at someone who is blind. So it's not only that physically it's very, very difficult for him, but in the Jewish culture, they looked at someone that was born blind at this time as someone who was cursed by God. If you remember in John 9, when they, they come to Jesus and they say, Jesus, who sinned that this man was born blind? Was it his sin or was it his parents' sin? They only have two categories. Well, it's really just one. Sin has caused this. this is the, God has cursed this man, either his sin or his parents' sin. Those are the only two options. They, they would look at someone born blind or who was blind, as God has brought judgment on the person. And so you can even envision what his world was like, this, this sneers and the smears of the people. and, and the, he, he couldn't see the lips moving, but he could hear the, the parent tell their child as they're walking past, stay over here, stay away from him. That man's cursed by God, stay away from him, that son of Timaeus. And this, this is the world that Bartimaeus lives in, being rejected by the people, and that, if that's not bad enough, it, sometimes going through hard things, it's still hard, but it helps if you have someone to support you, right? Be with you. Now, we saw the man healed in Bethsaida, uh, if you remember this. The way he was brought to Jesus was a group of people brought him to Jesus. He had support somehow, family, friends, who actually brought him to Jesus. And it says, the text says that they, the people, begged Jesus to do something for this blind man. Bartimaeus, he's sitting on the road by himself. He's a beggar. And that's the next description we have of him. A beggar. If Bartimaeus has any hope for food, for a mat to sleep on, for a blanket, anything, it's going to come from the mercy of other people. His only hope is to sit out on the edge of the road and can't see anyone, so just sit there, put something out, and hopefully someone will come by, drop some bread in there. And remember, this isn't a time where the resources are not anywhere the way resources are in our country. So you can imagine how many times the same people walked past blind, beggar, cursed by God, 
Bartimaeus. Maybe he got some crumbs someday. Maybe he got a meal every once in a while, but he would have to probably be satisfied with crumbs. And this is Bartimaeus's life. You could sum up his experience with a couple different words, probably. One who, uh, viewing from the people and from him, his own self, is a man who is unworthy. Un- unworthy to actually go out of your way to help, because what are you actually going to do? What are you going to do? There's nothing you can do for him. Nothing's going to solve his problem. He's a man who's a burden on the community. Again, I'm speaking from the community. That's the way he would be viewed, burden. If you try to help him, he's just going to, you know, suck up all the resources. So he's a burden to other people. He's, he's bottom of society. I don't know who is actually the, the bottom, but he is no doubt one of the least in the community. And uh, you might even say he's expendable in the eyes of the people. If, if somehow you went past, the, the people went past uh, the entrance into Jericho next week and Bartimaeus wasn't there, most people won't even notice. And if they did notice, they probably won't even care. And some will probably be even happy because they won't have to deal with the emotional stress of knowing, figuring out, what should I give this guy any money anymore or not? Expendable. And how long will this go on for, for Bartimaeus? Well, we don't know how long it has gone on for, but how long it would go on for? This is how Bartimaeus lives, and this is how Bartimaeus will die. There is no hope for Bartimaeus to overcome this. And to try to figure out how far, or like how far away we are from an experience like Bartimaeus is actually quite difficult. Like to experience what he felt on a day-to-day. I mean, you just have to try to think about it for, for us, what, what that would be like. Essentially, you would have to encounter a horrible accident where you've lost your eyesight. And it's beyond any kind of treatment. So you've, you've, you've gone blind. And for whatever reason, you've lost your insurance. And not only have you lost your insurance, but for whatever reason, you don't qualify for state funding for insurance. And for whatever reason, you can't get state funding for uh, housing allowance or some help with food, which means you're going to eventually run out of all your money. All your 401k is gone. All your resources is gone. But you can even hear in that how we have systems that have some sort of of a protection for us. Bartimaeus doesn't have any of that. Bartimaeus has absolutely no hope for anything to change. He is a blind beggar, and he always will be a blind beggar. And he offers nothing to anyone. Nobody, does, nobody wants his services. Nobody owes him anything. He will sit there day in, day out, until he dies. Unless, of course, God intervenes. That's, that's his only hope. Almighty God, the one who created him, the one who, who gave him life, only God can awaken his eyesight. That's it. That's all he has. 
His only hope is if the Christ would come as promised and give sight to the blind. And evidently, it seems like Bartimaeus had heard about this Christ that would come one day. This one who would be anointed by God, who would be the servant, who would preach good news to the poor, would set captives free, and would give sight to the blind, make deaf ears hearing once again. And evidently, Bartimaeus seems to have heard of those promises and had grabbed hold of those promises and had been waiting. Now, during this time, uh, Passover is nearing, as we'll, we'll see in weeks to come. So many people are making their pilgrimage to Jerusalem, and they're going to come right through Jericho. Now, there's probably a lot of beggars here at this time because they're hoping to get some charity from folks as they're heading towards Jerusalem. And Bartimaeus is there that day uh, at the outskirts of, of the town. People are leaving. He's hearing the crowd coming. And uh, he's hearing the shuffling of the feet. He can tell it's a, it's a large crowd. So maybe he gets kind of situated and ready, like gets in a good position. How do I make myself stand out from the other beggars here? Because I need to make sure that I eat tonight. And so he's, he's got everything ready and he's, he's shuffling through. Like, how, how do I get these people's attention? And then all of a sudden, somebody in the crowd, he hears them talking and he says I, something about, you know, yeah, when, when Jesus of Nazareth said that, that was... That was incredible, and he, that, that, that he heard the name. Je- Jesus of Nazareth? Could, could, that, could he actually be here today? And so somehow he's got to confirm this, right? And so he's, he's maybe reaching out to some of the people and saying, please, 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 is Jesus of Nazareth here? And some people just quickly, just get, stop touching me. Get away from me. He's, he's not, he's not going to let this opportunity slide. He grabs hold of someone, maybe, and says, please, please, I've got to know, is Jesus of Nazareth, is he here? And the man trying to get hold of him, yeah, yes, he's here. He's up, he's up all the way. He's, he's done. He's, he's done his teaching. He's, he's heading out. But let go of me. There's no way he's going to have any time for you anyways. I know why you're cursed by God. You're so rude. And Bartimaeus when he hears Jesus of Nazareth is actually here, it was this jolt that went on in his heart, I'm sure. Something is awakening the man and saying, I've got to get his attention. This is the moment. This is my time. The Lord has come. And so immediately, it says, he, he, he begins to cry out. This, is, this would be like you're sitting in a coffee shop and you're having a conversation and suddenly this long-lost friend walks through the door and something just goes on in your soul and blurts out because it's just, you love to see the person in your presence. And Bartimaeus just begins to cry out, the text says, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me, son of David. David's greater son, the anointed one, the king who's going to come and crush the enemies, the ones who's going to bring salvation and judgment. Son of David, have mercy on me. Mercy, I have nothing to offer you, but you have everything. Jesus, son of David. Son of David, uh, interestingly, Bartimaeus in the whole book is the only one to name Jesus as the son of David. Son of David, uh, David was promised in 2 Samuel 7 that he would be given a son, and this son would reign on the throne of God forever. He would reign over all the nations. 
Psalm 2 paints the, the, the same picture of the anointed one who would be the son of God, who would rule over all the nations. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him because he will come and crush God's enemies and heal God's people, bring them rescue. This is an incredible claim that Bartimaeus is saying here, that Jesus of Nazareth is the son of David, the anointed one who would come and bring judgment and salvation. And look what he says, have mercy on me. Have compassion. I don't deserve anything from you, son of David. It's very different from John and James. John and James say, hey, we want you to do whatever it is we command you to ask you to do. Remember that? Give us the best seats in the house. Bartimaeus says, I got nothing. I got nothing. Have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. And as he's speaking, he could suddenly feel the breath of multiple people around him, and he could see, hear the, the frustration and the anger in their voice, and they could feel it on the, from the spittle coming on as their sharp talk, and they say, pipe down, Bartimaeus. Be silent. That's enough of that. The teacher has no time for you. He's here to do important business. You're cursed by God. You're unworthy, you're a nobody, and you'll always be a beggar. Leave him alone. I, you know, I don't know how Bartimaeus responds to that when he's told to be silent uh, internally. But maybe he, maybe he thought, man, do with me what you want. My hope has come. My Lord is here. What shall man do to me? And it says that he began to cry out all the more. Son of David, son of David, over here, over here, have mercy on me, have mercy on me. I have nothing to offer you, but you have everything. Come, the anointed one, you have come, finally, the long-awaited son of David, come, have mercy on me, over here, over here. And suddenly, finally, Jesus stops. Remember, we've seen Jesus stop for those crying out. Uh, for mercy. Chapter 5, remember? The woman with the flow of blood as Jesus is on this important mission to heal Jairus' daughter. He stops to the shock of the crowd to care for this woman who is unworthy in the community. And here he's doing it again. How quickly it is that we suddenly think that Jesus doesn't have time for us. Maybe we're too small or we're too messy but beloved of God, you who are blood-bought, never forget that the Lord loves the whimper cry from his people. That little help, Lord, help. Have mercy on me. That, that perks up the Lord's ears like a parent can hear their child screaming at the playground. Among all the other children, they, he, the parent hears that child. And the Lord hears the whimper cries of his people. He stops. And he turns around and perhaps he said right to the people that were just rebuking Bartimaeus. He says, go, call him. At this point, the, a lot of the crowd is probably starting to be a little bit more silent, in the, except for this man over in the back, Bartimaeus. Son of David, have mercy on me! Finally, they get close to Bartimaeus, and they, 
maybe they maybe they try to reach out and touch him and he quickly moves away he thinks they're going to grab him and try to move him out of the way i'm not getting he's i'm not getting rid of this opportunity this is my time and they say take heart take heart he's calling for you get up and if you see in the text there bartimaeus taking his only possession his cloak this is what keeps him warm at night it's all he's got and he throws it off lest that should slow him down to go see his Lord. He throws it off, he gets up, sort of like uh, if you can envision a, a, a wife doing something in the house. Her, her husband has been deployed uh, in military service for the last six months, year. She's doing something, whether reading a book or doing something in the kitchen or whatever it is, some sort of a project, and somebody says, hey, he's home. He's outside in the driveway. You, you can imagine the woman just dropping anything she has and running to go see him. Here, Bartimaeus, he books it, springs up, he comes to Jesus, and you can see the crowd splitting. <gasps> stay away, stay away from him. And they got questions in their mind. Jesus, the, the one who teaches with such authority, and has such power, why would he waste his time with this guy? You see, they don't get it yet. The, the, the crowd does not understand that they are more like Bartimaeus than Bartimaeus himself. The crowd is very much like James and John, no doubt. They think they have something to offer. They think they're important. They think they deserve special treatment from Jesus. Not Bartimaeus. And yet Bartimaeus... The one who confesses Jesus as the son of David seems to have better sight than anyone in the crowd. As Paul calls it, the eyes of the heart. Can't physically see, but he's the only one with true sight there that day. And he comes to Jesus. Jesus says to him that question. What do you want me to do for you? The blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. Now, the, the term rabbi there, uh, many, many have pointed out uh, that this, it's not just, it's not actually the, just the normal word for rabbi. It's, it's this heightened sense. It's only used one other time in the New Testament. This is in John 20, when Mary sees the resurrected Christ. And actually there they translate it as Rabboni. Uh, that's what the same term is. It, it's it's supposed to be this heightened word of my spiritual teacher, so as to say you could translate it as my master, my Lord, my rabbi, you're mine. And so he's, he's, he's this heightened sense of you are my leader, my master. And then his request, let me recover my sight, which seems sort of obvious, right? I mean, he can't see. Um, but even in that, you have a confession of who Jesus was and the power and the compassion that Bartimaeus believed Jesus would have. For example, if you need a spinal fusion, you probably are not going to go ask your local barista at the coffee shop to give you a spinal fusion, right? Or your financial advisor. You're going to go to a back surgeon, right? Because they have the skill and the know-how and the power to actually do it. 
if you need help with uh, financially paying a mortgage or something like that because you've run into some trouble, you're probably not going to just go out and ask some strangers that you meet down at the grocery store. You're going to ask people who you know will have compassion on you, who are friends and family and are willing at great cost to help you. And so Bartimaeus here is not just asking for some old miracle from anybody. He's coming to the one who he believes has the power and the compassion to actually help and do something here. So this is an incredible confession here that Bartimaeus is making. You are my Lord, my master. You are the one, O son of David, who can actually fix me. You are the one I need. And of course, this is the moment And Jesus simply just says, go your way. Your faith has made you well. And that would have been uh, quite a sight to see, I'm sure, when Bartimaeus first opens his eyes. What's interesting, though, uh, perhaps you've heard of Fanny Crosby. She was uh, um, a famous hymn writer, uh, one of the the most famous uh, in history, church history. Uh, She was blinded at, at uh, infancy. Uh, there was some sort of uh, issue that happened when she was just, uh, just an infant and was blind uh, for the rest of her life, uh, but wrote all these great hymns. And uh, history says that a pastor at one point uh, said to her that it's, it's such a pity that a woman that has, has been given so many incredible gifts to serve the Lord was not given sight. And this is what the, the pastor said to her. And she responded and said, you know, if I had the opportunity at my birth to ask one request to the Lord, it would have been that he would make sure that I was born blind. The pastor thought, why is that? And she said, well, because I know that when I get to heaven, the first person that shall gladden these eyes will be my Savior himself. You think of blind Bartimaeus that day, opening his eyes. I mean, sure, seeing the trees, I'm sure, is a a wonderful thing. The blades of grass, the colors, the vibrant colors, the, the sun, the sky. I mean, wonderful. But I bet if we ask blind Bartimaeus what he was most excited for, the first thing he sees is the son of David. My Rabbi, my Lord, right before him. Why I think that's the case, because what, what does he do with his sight? He immediately follows him. He's the only one in the whole book who had received a miracle that was granted the opportunity to follow Jesus on the way. And here, Mark uh, I, I believe here, uh, remember, using Bartimaeus' story not simply as a story. Did it happen historically? Absolutely, 100%. But it's not meant to just be a, a reminder of the power of Jesus, but it's also meant to be a picture, symbolically, just like the first blind man, of what it look, should look like to follow Jesus. So if you remember, actually, the, the first eight chapters of the book... We're all painting this, uh, the picture of the identity of Jesus. That's what it was focused on. It was very, uh, a lot of miracles happening there. Um, and then right at 822, you have the healing of the blind man. Um, and 
Jesus here uses that opportunity to ask right before the passage, he says to the disciples, do you have eyes but you don't see? And then, the, then you have the healing of the blind man and then the, the confession of Jesus as the Christ. And the rest of the next two chapters are all focused on what does it look like to follow Jesus? And so that's why we have all this teaching on the, the way that we oftentimes think of following Jesus, about having position and influence and safety and comfort. Jesus says it's not that at all. It's this upside-down way to think about it. The way to follow Christ is to deny yourself, lay yourself down, become a servant to other people, to know that you have nothing to offer. And your, your common vocabulary should be, help, Lord. I have nothing. I'm empty. I need your grace. I need your power. There's nothing in me. Only by your hand. And that, uh, that blind man in, Beth, in Bethsaida actually opened this section, and this one ends the section. Uh, so that uh, most would read this, uh, so as to say, Mark trying to help, help us sing with Bartimaeus. We are beloved beggars too, who are welcomed by the Lord. We are beggars. We have nothing to offer. We are unworthy of the Lord, and we are unworthy of his kindness. And that seems to be what Mark's point is that we would gain from the story. But this reality, I don't know about you, but it's a hard one to swallow. In my own heart, I want to be like, more like James and John. I want to pursue what they pursue. I want to pursue safety, comfort, position, power, reputation, influence. And the spirit of John and James is much more alive in me oftentimes than blind Bartimaeus. I think that I'm pretty special and that I deserve special treatment from Jesus. And the last thing I want to do is admit that I have nothing to offer. I want to be able to point to something that says I am valuable because I can do this. And I don't like receiving something where I have nothing to point to to say, well, that I was worthy of receiving that. We don't like that as a culture. I mean, just think about uh, if somebody offered you uh, a week at their family cabin. Okay, They say, I, you can go to the cabin for free for your whole family, spend a week there, have a great time, relax. By the way, there's, there's a boat up there, there's a tube and skis, and there's a lot of gas already in the gas cans. Fill it up, do whatever you want. And uh, I was there last week, I stocked the kitchen full of food, so you don't have to bring any food, you're totally set. And by the way, don't do not waste your time cleaning because I already paid a cleaning service to come in and clean up after you guys. And I know you guys are kind of messy and you might break something. Don't worry if you break something. I'm taking the bill. Don't, don't worry about it. Okay. Now, part of us would probably hear that and be like, wow, this is, this is going to be sweet, right? But there's part of us that's going to struggle with that. Because we're going to be there through the week and just seeing how generous somebody's being towards us. How can we make this up? Maybe, maybe a gift card or something? <laughs> maybe I could cut the lawn? Can I, can I do something to just demonstrate that I'm valuable, that I, that I deserve this treatment? Because we have a hard time just simply receiving fully and offering nothing back. And so this, this is a hard reality to live in. It's uncomfortable for us. The reality is you and I are beggars before God. 
We have nothing to offer so as to say, Lord, you're lucky to have us because we have A, B, and C. But the reality is, the more we know that, the more free we will be. And it has this ability to actually shape us into a beautiful way. So just think, knowing that we are beggars actually produces humility in us when we're spiritually strong. Right? God willing, there are times where you will feel spiritually strong. Right? You're, you're practicing the spiritual disciplines. You, you're, you're able to rein in the tongue at appropriate times. You're able to respond to gentle voice, a gentle response to, to harsh criticism. And you're able to kind of go along pretty well. You're, you're, you're maybe sharing the gospel with a friend at work. Things are going pretty well. Uh, that can be actually a dangerous time for us because we can begin to think that we have the skills now and we know how to do this and we actually can develop this independent spirit where you know, we don't need the Lord. We've kind of figured this out. We have the skills. We're good. And you think of Demas. Uh, it was Paul's, one of Paul's running mates. Paul and uh, Demas used to be good friends. Writes about him in Colossians. Demas seems to have risked his life for the sake of the gospel for Paul, who was in prison. And yet, at the end of Paul's life, where is Demas? He tells us at the end of 2 Timothy, having loved this present world, Demas has deserted me. All it takes is a, a couple times of like success for us to think, hey, we got this together. And we no longer need the Lord. As you've probably heard, one... Uh, one uh, foreign missionary once said uh, he, that he was in, so impressed with the American church of how much they can do without God. You know, so, so success can be very dangerous, but if we can come back to this and even be experiencing moments of being where we, our beggarliness comes out, that can be a good grace to us. So we come back and say, wait, Lord, hold on, I, I am nothing. Anything good that comes out of me is by your grace alone. And so this is a good reality for us. This will uh, produce humility in us when we're spiritually strong. And on the opposite side, it produces stability when we're spiritually weak. Stability when we're spiritually weak. Hopefully you have times where you're spiritually strong, but reality is you'll also be spiritually weak. And at those times, you can fall into despair. If you don't know that, hey, you were called as a beggar, you'll always have nothing to offer the Lord from yourself. And he doesn't love you based on who you are or what you've become. He loves you based on himself and who Christ is. We once were at a wedding uh, and the, the pastor was sharing quotes that from, the, from the bride and the groom. He had asked some questions on like why you want to be married and such. I don't remember the exact quotes or anything, but it essentially went like this. He asked the groom, what do you appreciate about the bride? His answer, she's so good looking. He said, why do you want to be married? Answer, she's so good looking. And it just went on and on like that. Now you sit there and you hear that and you go, okay, this, this marriage might end quick. And it actually did. It did, sadly. Because it's founded on something that is just external. External looks, can, they can be gone in a moment. An accident? And if it's not gone in a moment, we all get old. We don't look like we did when we were 23, right? I mean, some, some of our hair even falls out. Good night, right? But we look different. 
right? And if it's based on that, it's not going to work. But, but I also thought, man, what a terrifying place for that bride. For the next years, her only hope of feeling loved and cared for is if she can keep those looks. That's terrifying. And if we bring that attitude to the Lord, like we got to keep up some front, like now look at us, Lord, look at what I did, Lord, and I, this, this is why you should love me, that's terrifying. And brothers and sisters, it's good news that we were, we were brought into the kingdom as total beggars. There was nothing lovable about us. Paul says in Romans, it was while we were enemies that Christ reconciled us by the death of his son. We were enemies of God. And in that moment, he called us to himself. And brothers and sisters, this is great news. You leave here today, this morning, as a beggar before God, who is clothed in the righteousness of Jesus and beloved by God. That's great news. Beggars though we be, God adores his children because we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ and God loves his people. Well, I can see we're out of time, so I got to wrap up there. Uh, Let's move to the Lord's Supper uh, as we remind ourselves that it is because of our sin that Christ had to shed his blood and he did so willingly for beggars like us that we would be reconciled to God. If you're here this morning and know the Lord Jesus as the son of David, the Lord who died in the place of sinners, uh, you may partake of the the elements provided you are seeking to walk in repentant faith with the Lord. If you're here this morning and you do not proclaim Jesus as Lord, risen from the dead, uh, or are not walking in repentant faith, we ask you not to partake. But for all you believers striving to walk in repentant faith, come now, grab the elements, and we'll We will partake together.